Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 3. As you're finding Matthew 3, we'll just get you kind of caught up. We have been, over the last two weeks, covering the uh, first few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, uh, in his writings, is teeing us up to behold the glory of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we learn that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the promised Messiah. He's the Savior. He's God with us. And in Matthew 3, we're going to lunge about 30 years into the future from the first two chapters at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So uh, the title of the message this morning is Repentance, the Kingdom, and the Servant King. Because in this chapter, chapter 3 of Matthew, we're going to meet some, some really important characters. Uh, we've already met Jesus as a baby, but now we're going to meet him again as an adult. But we're also going to meet John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is this prophet figure uh, who has a very specific message, is doing a very specific ministry that I think will give us some great insight uh, in the start, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry as well. So we'll try to unravel what's going on with John. Like, what is he doing? Why is he here? What's his baptism all about? And why did Jesus need to be baptized? And maybe you haven't thought about that, but, but a lot of people get, their, uh, get confused or maybe they get a head scratcher. Why, why is Jesus being baptized? Especially when John says that this baptism is for repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. Well, why, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Well, we'll talk about that and more. We're going to see in all this, though, the urgency of our need to repent and the urgency of those around us to repent and to recognize Jesus as the Son of God who's been sent to serve and sent to save. So uh, hopefully you're already in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read the first couple of verses and dive in. So join me in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we're grateful to gather together once again as the people of God, to open your word and to behold your glory. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help all of us to see and know your word rightly, that we would understand it rightly, that we would apply it to our lives rightly. Uh, Lord, we want to be faithful to you and faithful to your word. So help us, help me as I teach, help our leaders as they facilitate discussion, help our students as they become exposed more and more to the truth of the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's kind of three sections in this chapter that we're going to walk through, and so I'll give them to you on the screen. The first section uh, is the ministry of John in verses 1 through 6, the ministry of John. John the Baptist was a preacher out in the desert. This first verse, we tells us, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And that should immediately remind you and me, <clears throat> as it would have immediately reminded the first audience of Matthew's gospel, of the prophets of the Old Testament. Often, the prophets of the Old Testament, the ones who proclaim the word of the Lord, often came from barren places. 
And John preached a very specific message. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, John is saying to those crowds who have grown around him, the kingdom of heaven is here. And so the right response of the kingdom breaking into the present is for us to repent. And what does it mean to repent? Well, it means uh, very basically just to turn from one way to another, right? If I'm walking in this direction and then I turn in this direction, I have repented. I've turned from one thing and gone to another. And it has two kind of ideas in it. Not only is it a change of direction, so a change of your behavior, but it's also a change of your mind, right? It's, it's going from thinking that this thing will lead me to life to then turning away from that, not just physically, but in my mind and saying, no, that won't lead me to life. This will lead me to life. So repentance is a whole change, your mind and your body, your thoughts and your actions from one thing to another. And what John is saying is, now that the kingdom is here, you must repent. You must turn. And verse 5 tells us that Jerusalem and all Judea were coming to listen to him. He was insanely popular in a very short amount of time. And why is that? Well, if we know the story of Israel and we know the history of the Bible, we know that when Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, stopped speaking the word of the Lord, there was silence. For 400 years, God did not send a prophet to speak to his people. For 400 years, God has been quiet. No new revelation has been given. No new words have been spoken. And now the silence has been broken. 400 years later, this man dressed as a prophet wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist is now speaking about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth now. And what is his message? It's not to rejoice that the silence has been broken. It's not to rest for God's going to make everything okay. It's not to cheer up in light of their Roman oppressors. No, his message is to repent. Now, don't miss this. There are a lot of things going on in the kingdom of God. There are a lot of things going on specifically in, in our day as the church. But the core of what John is saying and the core of what our church is to be about, the core of what the kingdom is going to display for the world is that sin leads to death and we must turn from it. That sinners can be made right with God if they would repent. This message and man are what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah verse four, chapter 40, verse 3. That's what the quote in verse 3. John is preparing the way for who to come? He's preparing the way for the Lord. He's preparing the way for God to come, to make his paths straight. And verse 4 piles on these connections. Camel hair garments, leather belts, locusts and honey as the diet. This is a prophet for sure. The first readers would have seen this and read this and known exactly the kind of person Matthew is talking about. It especially connects John to the prophet Elijah. If you go back, we won't turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, how did they describe Elijah? Well, he's this man out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. So Matthew is cluing us in to make that connection. So the surrounding people in the area by the Jordan River are coming to hear John, to hear his message of repentance, but also to be baptized by him. So this prophet, making a way for the Lord, was baptizing people who confess their sins. So what's going on 
here. What's this baptism all about? Well, John is proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is here. God's silence is broken. And and these Jews who come before John hear this message and respond with humility. They respond not with pride, not with arrogance that Israel is about to take over. They don't think that John is talking about Rome is about to be put away uh, or done with or dealt with by God. No, they respond with repentance. And this confession of sin was then signified, it was shown to the world, publicly professed in John's practice of baptism. Now, let's be really clear here. John's baptism here in Matthew chapter 3, and you see it in other gospels as well, is not Christian baptism, right? Like, the church has not been given the task to go and make disciples and baptize them until Matthew chapter 28. Well, that's 25 chapters ahead, right? So we don't want to get ahead and and bring that kind of stuff back into Matthew chapter 3. So what is John doing? If it's not Christian baptism, then what is it? Well, back then, if a Gentile, if, if someone who was not a Jew by birth, wanted to become a follower of Yahweh, wanted to become part of the people of Israel, wanted to become uh, submissive to the law of Moses, then often they were required to dip in water as a kind of cleansing ritual. I didn't just... It wasn't that they were physically unclean, but it was this ritual that they were being cleansed and washed and brought into God's people. Well, but John's baptism isn't exactly that either because all of Jerusalem and Judea are coming. So most of the people around John are Jews. So if it's not Christian baptism, and if it's not Gentile, what we call proselyte baptism, well, what is it? In short, John's Ministry and John's baptism is unique. Think of it as a baton pass between the Old and New Testament ages. So the Old Testament, things were going one way. The New Testament, things are going in somewhat of a different way. But this confession of sins and turning from your sin by repenting and identifying through water baptism as someone ready for the kingdom of heaven to come is obviously something of great insight for us because a lot of these themes will be brought into Christian baptism as well. How do we as Christians profess to the world through the mandate that Jesus has given his church that we are followers of Jesus? Yes, we confess our sins. Yes, we repent of our sins. But the scripture is clear. We profess to the world that we're followers of Jesus when we go into the waters of baptism. It's the way, it's the sign that we show to the world whose we are now, that we've died to ourselves and we've risen in newness of life with Jesus. So here's John preaching repentance, baptizing those who confess their sins and preparing the way of the Lord. And who shows up to spoil the party? Well, the religious leaders do. So let's keep reading in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But when he, that's John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is heavy stuff. So not only are we seeing the ministry of John in the first six verses of Matthew 3, but number two, the next section is the message of John. What is John's message? What is he speaking about? John has harsh words for these religious leaders. Why is that? Well, throughout the Gospels, as you read, you will see a very clear theme, and that is the religious leaders of Jesus' day are regularly marked by self-righteousness. They're marked by self-righteousness. They want people to see them and see their good works and, and notice that they are better. Notice that they are good. Notice that they are clean. Notice that they are smart. Notice that they are right. And this self-righteousness is incompatible with John's earlier message to repent and confess your sins for the kingdom of heaven is coming. They're not wanting to humble themselves and repent. They came because they want to make a show of their faithfulness to the law, much like Jesus will critique just a couple chapters later in the Sermon on the Mount. John calls these leaders a brood of vipers. In other words, their parents are serpents. A brood is a, a group of child children, right? If, if you have a brood, you have a group of children. So if you're a brood of vipers, then your parents are serpents. Your parents are snakes, which I guess is like a huge diss in the Old Testament days. Why? Because when you think serpent in the scriptures, you think of the devil. I mean, he appears in Genesis chapter 3 as a serpent. And John is looking at these religious leaders, these self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees, and says, you brood of vipers. Jesus will say the same thing later when he says, oh, you're not of your father Abraham, you're of your father the devil. Jesus is, I mean, John is furious at their pride. Back then, the Jewish leaders had begun to teach a kind of salvation through merit. So the Jewish leaders, this is in what we call Second Temple Judaism. We don't have to get in the weeds there, but just know that some of the religious leaders in that day believed that Abraham was so faithful, so righteous, so in lockstep with the will of God that Abraham, the father of Israel, had accrued enough merit, enough righteousness, that he was able to cover any sin issues between God and his physical descendants. That's what John is getting at in verse 9. John is saying to these religious leaders, don't even go there. Don't even say, well, our father is Abraham. We have Abraham for our father. As if you don't need to repent, as if you don't need to confess your sins, as if you don't need the grace of God. And students, that's a word for us. That's not just a word for the religious leaders 2,000 years ago. Do not presume that you are in the kingdom of God because you have godly parents. Don't presume that you're in the kingdom of God because you attend this church. Those things will not bear the weight of your soul on the last day. John says, that the dead stones around him, probably the, the stones that he's standing on there at the River Jordan, those stones are just as likely to become children of Abraham for real than these religious leaders. 
It's just as likely for these stones to say, well, I'm, I'm Abraham's child too, than for the religious leaders to actually be the sons of Abraham. Why? Because entrance into the kingdom of God is not connected to Abraham's bloodline. It's connected to his faith. It's not connected to his heritage. It's connected to his belief. It's connected to his turning from his own way, way back in Genesis 12, and believing in God's word over what he saw and thought and felt to be true. So what are these leaders called to do? What is John calling them to do? And what is he calling us to do? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you and I claim to have died to ourselves and trust the Lord for our salvation, then we will long to obey his word. If we've died to ourselves and have risen with Jesus, who is the word incarnate, then we will desire, we will long to be obedient to his word inspired in scripture. That means, among other things, confessing our sins to him when we fall short and growing into a spiritually fruitful believer. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These are fruits that the Spirit cultivates in each one of us. Are these evident in your life? Are these evident in my life? It's a question we all have to wrestle with as we read this and think, well, surely I'm not the religious leader in this text. Well, who are you? I mean, we have so much opportunity, so much access, so much clout. It's easy for us to get lost in our position in the community or get lost in our position among friends or get lost in our position among other churches even and think, well, we are nailing this thing. That must mean I'm good. And that's not the case. John says the ax is laid to the root Any tree that's not bearing fruit is a dead tree, and they will be thrown into the fire. John is not letting these religious leaders or us off the hook. Students, you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. But you will know a tree by its fruit. And if the fruit that you consistently produce is dead and diseased, then the problem is not with the fruit. The problem is the tree. So we must be honest with ourselves, just as these religious leaders are called to be honest with themselves. John then points forward. He says, my baptism is a baptism with water as a sign of repentance for these people to identify as people who are in desperate need of God's grace as his kingdom bears itself out in the present day. But someone is coming. Someone is coming who has a greater baptism than me. Someone who's coming who is in another league than me, says John. Slaves would often put on, take off, and carry around their master's shoes in that day. That would be the role of a slave, right? So I don't even touch my own feet. Feet were pretty unclean back in those days for various reasons, both morally and physically. And a slave would be the one to put on your sandals, take off your sandals, carry them around wherever you need to go. John is saying of the one to come, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. Like I'm not even worthy to be called a slave in his house. 
There's a huge gap in John's mind between him and the one who is to come. The coming one's baptism will also be categorically different than John's baptism. He, the one to come, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this is the same action, right? It's not like he's going to baptize some people with the Spirit. He's going to baptize some people in fire, right? It's not like good baptism, bad baptism, right? It's the same action. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's going on there? You see that the Lord will baptize with the Holy Spirit all throughout the Old Testament. The Lord will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, Joel 2. We won't have time to read those, but the Lord in those texts is promising to send out his spirit to wash his people clean, to to cleanse them of their unrighteousness. And also throughout the Old Testament prophets, we see that fire is often a purifying action. It's something used to refine, not to destroy. So listen to Zechariah 13 verse 9. He's talking about the remnant of faithful people on the earth. And Zechariah says of the Lord, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. So the spirit and fire, the spirit and and fire. Hold your place in Matthew and flip ahead to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me give you a little language semantic explanation. The word in Hebrew for the spirit is ruach, and the word in Greek for spirit is pneuma. All right? So we get pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Right? So in both Hebrew and Greek, the word ruach and the word pneuma means spirit, but it also means wind, and it also means breath, right? So spirit, breath, wind, all of these things are surrounding this one word that we use in the Hebrew or this one word that we use in the Greek. In the Old Testament, when the temples were dedicated, what would happen? Fire would fall, wind would blow, and smoke would fill the temple. This this concept of of wind and fire is an established pattern in the Old Testament. I mean, think about the Exodus. What led the, the Israelites out of Egyptian rule? A pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud or a pillar of wind, right? So now in Acts chapter 2, this is after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now flip back to Matthew, but think about Acts chapter 2. Jesus promised his disciples to send them his spirit. And how is it signified in Acts chapter 2 when the church of Jesus Christ is born to go fulfill the great commission to extend God's glory to the ends of the earth? A mighty rushing wind and fire and the spirit filling them all. 
John, in other words, is spot on. He knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen when the king of the kingdom comes. Okay, verse 12 tells us that there's only two options. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Either we will repent and be welcomed into the kingdom of God, or we will not and be delivered to destruction. These are the only two options that human beings have in the world for eternity. This this notion of using a winnowing fork. We talked about this when we were going through the book of Ruth, right? The person would take the winnowing fork, he would throw the wheat up into the air, the wind would throw out the chaff, but the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And that's how they would separate the grain from the chaff. And John is saying that the one who is to come will know exactly who the grain is and exactly who the chaff is. The grain will be brought into his barn, gathered into his possession, gathered into his presence, but the chaff will be burned. It'll be destroyed. So here we are with this fiery prophet pointing to the kingdom and the judgment, calling on all the religious leaders, the Judeans, the the ones who live in Jerusalem, all who gather around his preaching, And he is calling on all of them to repent, to confess their sins, and to identify through baptism. And while all this is going on, Jesus shows up with an odd request. So in the time that we have left, let's look at number three, the third section of this chapter, the baptism of Jesus. Start with me in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Let's just stop there. Then Jesus came. So we don't know exactly if the religious leaders are still there. We just know that the next thing that happens is that Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John and asks John to baptize him. Now, by this time, Jesus is about 30 years old. We're not sure if the Pharisees or Sadducees were still there. But wait, doesn't, isn't this baptism a baptism of repentance? Isn't this a baptism that's signified through the confession of your sins? What is Jesus doing? What does he need to repent of? Well, Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything. We, we are very clear. We are on solid ground when we say that the Scripture teaches that Jesus was sinless. And that's exactly what John thinks. Look at verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So so John sees Jesus and, and the gospel of John tells us that when Jesus shows up, John exclaims, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, he knew who he was. And then Jesus says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John is going, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, I mean, neither does it make any sense to prevent Jesus from doing something he wants to do, but that's another conversation, right? Peter paid the price for that one when he said, no, Lord, that'll never happen. And then he got called Satan. Uh, so we don't want to say no, Lord. Jesus, you're the one who has come, John is saying. You're the one who I was just talking about, the one who comes with a, a greater baptism, the one who's going to bring in the kingdom. And you need me to baptize you? 
If anyone needs to be baptized for repentance, it's me. I need you to baptize me. But Jesus gives this curious and puzzling and powerful statement that convinces John in verse 15. Let's look at it. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus doesn't disagree with John. Jesus doesn't disagree in principle with John. In fact, it's very likely that Jesus would have said something like, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't have any sin to repent of. You do. That makes sense. John, you're on to something. But he says, let it be so now. In other words, Jesus is saying, at this point in time, right now, what we need to do is what I'm saying. What we need to do in this moment is for you to baptize me. Your baptism by me in the Spirit is coming. But my, my, baptize, my, my baptism by you in the water is now. And why is that? Well, Jesus says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying to John, what we're about to do is right because it is God's will for us. John's role is the prophet making the way for the Lord. But what is Jesus' role? What is Jesus' role on the earth? He is the Son of God who has come to suffer. He is the Son of God who has come to humble himself by taking the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death. What we're witnessing right here is the continuation and the beginning, in a very real sense, of the humiliation of the Son of God, his humbling. He's going to suffer all the way from Nazareth to the cross. His role is not just the son of David. His role is not just the son of Abraham, as we've seen so far. His role is also the suffering servant. His role is not just to be our king, but to be our priest. Kings rule over us. Priests intercede for us to God, offering sacrifices on our behalf to God. And when Levites were 30 years old, they would undergo a ceremonial washing and anointing to begin their official ministry as priests. Jesus is 30 years old, beginning his work by doing what? Going into the water with all those who know their need and with all those who trust God to forgive them of their sins. Students, by being baptized in the baptism of John, Jesus is clearly, intentionally, and powerfully identifying with the very people that he has come to save. He's entering into their situation. He's entering into their identification as people who need God and his grace. So Jesus is baptized by John. John consents to do it. And then he comes out of the water. Look at verse 17. Or verse 16, rather. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So he's washed in the water, and the Spirit 
comes down to anoint him or to rest on him. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit, just like the prophets and kings of the Old Testament were anointed by the Spirit. And from the heavens, we hear the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Remember, for 400 years, God has been silent to the people of God. And John is coming out as a prophet saying, I'm preparing the way for the Lord. And this crowd is witnessing the baptism of Jesus. And they hear God's voice speak. Jesus' long road to the cross has begun. And God's silence has ended. The Spirit is with him. And the Father is delighted in him. J.C. Ryle makes a comment on this verse. It says, It was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, Let us make man. And it was the whole Trinity again at the beginning of the gospel that seems to say, Let us save man. The God of the Bible is the God who saves. And Jesus, right here at the beginning of his ministry, knows exactly what he's stepping into. Jesus knows in Matthew chapter 3 that he's not stepping into a role to be popular, to be influential, to be loved, to be adored. He is stepping into a role to be stricken and afflicted, to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, to be pierced for our transgressions and to be crushed for our iniquities. And it's the Lord who will lay those iniquities on him. But just like in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his arrest and crucifixion, he walks in obedience to the word of his Father and walks into the waters of baptism to identify with those who need his grace, who need to be saved by him. The God of the Bible is the God who saves. It's his kingdom that's breaking into the present here in Matthew. And the right response then is the right response today. We must repent. We must turn from our sins. We must trust in the words of the prophet, in the work of the priest, and in the rule of the king. My hope and my prayer, and I pray it starts with me, is that we would be honest with ourselves. We would say to the Lord, God, search me and see if there's any wicked way within me. And that by his grace, he would put our sins to death, especially this morning, the sins of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the sin of self-righteousness and pride. We all are in desperate need of God's mercy. We're in need of his grace. And my hope and my prayer is that those who understand his grace, who understand his forgiveness, will be quick to show it to others. Right? We love because he first loved us. You've been forgiven much. Go forgive. These are things that we'll read in his word together. So let me pray for you, and we'll head off into our groups. Oh Lord, we're grateful that we have this passage of Scripture for us to read and to be stunned by. That the silence is broken, 
The voice of the Lord is heard clearly through the obedience of the Son. And the Son's obedience in this chapter is to identify with those who turn from their sins, who place their faith in the Lord to forgive them of their sins, who know that they are desperate, who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst for not self-righteousness, but true righteousness. And Lord, I pray that that would be the desire of each of our hearts as well, that we wouldn't be content by having a godly family, although that is such a blessing and such an opportunity to see and to experience your grace and your kindness. Or that we wouldn't be content with going to a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church. Although what a wonderful grace gift that is to us. As we think about brothers and sisters all around the world who would be floored if they were given the opportunity to gather together with hundreds of other believers openly and freely to proclaim your praises loudly with, without any fear. What a gift. But Lord, those things do not make us content because those things do not save. You save. And so Lord, I pray that our rest would be found ultimately in you. That our righteousness would be found ultimately in in you, and that you would have your way among us by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.